Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends, Tecolvi Jackson Van and James Jones. Welcome to the podcast, men. Thank you for having me. Um, and I'll just give a little background so our listeners know um, who we're talking to and the focus of this podcast. Um, Tecolvi Jackson Van and James Jones are black Latter-day Saints. Both men are in their 30s. Um, both men are single and pursuing great careers. Um, James is calling in over the phone, and I'm kind of stretching my technical abilities through Google Hangouts and tying everybody together, but I think we've got James, who's calling in from Boston. He's pursuing a medical uh, musician. He's a musician um, pursuing his career there, and Tocolvi is here in our home. Tocolvi lives in Salt Lake City, and I became aware, I think I've been aware of these two men for a while, um, but I became aware of these two faithful Latter-day Saints with, this has happened in July of 2019, with Tocolvi being a temple worker in the Payson Temple and being released from being a temple worker because, because of your hairstyle. And then eventually, after a short period of time, being recalled as a temple worker. And I've seen both of your Facebook posts, as well as Sisters in Zion, talking about this. And it's really helped me to understand honoring different races and different cultures and creating space for the beautiful differences. And I'm recognizing I'm a 58-year-old white guy that sort of drew, grew up in the middle of privilege <laughs> of Mormon culture. But I recognize that my responsibility as a 58-year-old white guy is to not really see the church through my perspective, but to see it through the perspective of others and what I can do to make sure that good members like both of you feel welcome, and maybe more importantly, that good members like you both can teach me how to be a better disciple of Christ, and I can learn from you in the body of Christ. So I just felt having you on the podcast would help our listeners that have the same goals I do. Um, and so I think this podcast causes look 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 a little inward as a church, and, and me individually say, what can I do better? And so it's kind of educational using this experience and your lived stories um, to share some thoughts. So is that okay for an introduction? Yes, sir. So um, let's start with both of these uh, men of served missions um, to Colby, to Lance, Lansing, Michigan, Lansing. Um, tell us when you served. or So I served from uh, October 99 till September 2001. Um, it was a very cold mission. So I grew up in Georgia. So my first winters outside of Georgia were spent on Lake Michigan. Um, I was called and I was frozen. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great experience for me to, to be there and to serve. Did you, and James, tell us where you served. I served uh, South Africa Cape Town Mission, summer 2007 to summer 2009. It, any feelings of um, which was a more difficult place for a black Latter-day Saint to serve? I don't know if the two of you have ever compared stories. I'm going to give that to Tekovi. <laughs> so, funny story. I had this area on my mission, Howard City. It's a little north of Grand, Grand Rapids. And I was there from May 2000 to October 2000. And I remember playing this game with myself every day 
to see if I would see any other black people. <laughs> <laughs> I would go weeks without seeing other black people. And even at church, like the whole time I was there in that ward, there was never another like black member of the church or black missionary or anything. So I would go just weeks without seeing black people. And that was, that was tough. So that is tough. That's yeah. And tell us about Cape Town, James. Yeah. Um, first of all, as far as the difficulty goes, I would definitely give that one to Tekovi. Like definitely being a black Latter-day Saint in America, I think is more difficult than being a Latter-day Saint in Africa, uh, South Africa even. Because, you know, in South Africa, still the majority of the population is black. So uh, when you're the default, you know, no one really bats an eyelid at your presence in a in a building, even if it did come to even if it was a Christian religion that came to your country via, you know, missionary work or whatever. So like pretty much every ward I served in was majority black, if not all black. So uh, I don't think anybody really batted an eyelid at the notion of black Latter-day Saints, because even though many of these saints knew the history of the church there, they had all like reconciling that is already kind of built into membership down there in South Africa. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really come up. That's interesting. That's very helpful for me. Will you tell our listeners, let's start with Tukolvi, just your career. I know you're a marriage and family therapist. You're doing great things professionally, Tukolvi. Just share with our listeners what you're doing. Sure. So um, I'm currently an adolescent therapist um, at a residential treatment center in Utah County. And then I'm in a group practice um, in Provo and Spanish Fork. And you and you have a master's and you're working on a PhD. Have a master's, working on a doctorate. Working, that's awesome. Trying to stay alive. Yeah. Talk to <laughs> your area of focus with those adolescents. So it's actually interesting. So when I left for my mission, I'd already applied to BYU. And I was a speech and language pathology major, wanted to be a speech therapist. And while I was serving in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, one of my companions got sick. And so we couldn't go out and proselyte. And so all I had to keep me company were the scriptures and some ensigns. And I just remember flipping through the ensign. There were all these articles about families and things like that. And it was like, hmm, this appeals to me. And I don't know why it appeals to me. Then I did some some praying and it was just clear that that was the direction that my career was supposed to take. So I actually changed my major while on my mission. Wow. And I've never looked back. That's great. And um, I love that. I love that you're focused on this adolescent age as well as that sounds like you're doing group work also. Mm -hmm. uh, tell our listeners, James, what you're doing in Boston. So about five years ago, I moved out to Boston to perform acapella full time. I got into acapella while I was at BYU. There was like a big acapella scene there. But mind you, I wasn't intent on doing music full time. I didn't even study music at school. I studied psychology and I was intent on going to get my master's in educational leadership and policy. But after grad school, after grad school didn't work out for me, I just in a moment of frustration was like, you know what, let me see if this music thing can work. And within about three months, 
I was auditioning for a full-time singing group that happened to be based in Boston. And then when I got the gig, I, I moved to Boston and I've been performing ever since. So I'm, I'm not full-time anymore. I've sang with a couple of groups since then. I've only been about full-time for about four and a half years. But for the last year or so, I've still been singing part-time in various projects. Not all of them are acapella. I've also been um, doing acting, modeling, voiceover work. And when I don't have any contracts in entertainment, I drive for Uber. I love that. Um, what percent of um, people tip on the Uber app? I've always wanted to ask an Uber driver that. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know. I think it's like one in ten maybe. Not a lot of people tip. See, I'm old school. We just always tip drivers. And so I tip, and I sometimes I think the Uber drivers are surprised. But um, I, I'm definitely surprised when it happens. That's interesting. Um, really cool of both of you men following your dreams. Before we went live, I you know visited with, and I think it's just you're both pioneers. You're both trailblazers. You're both doing things that I assume maybe people in your family haven't done, and same with lots of families. And um, to be a musician, you've kind of got this safe route, James, maybe of the career and the grad school, and but you're following your dreams to be a musician. And you've got yeah. gifts there, and and it's kind of a cloud. It's probably some of your highest highs and your lowest lows are on that road um, as you're really mm. going out there on a limb and really extending yourself. And I just admire you for doing that. And I'm 58. I can't go back and relive my 30s. And I will. You will always know <laughs> what you know when you're my age that I did follow my dreams and I went to Boston and I hope to go to LA. I think you mentioned before we went live, and I really admire that. And and likewise with you, um, to Colby, is following your dreams to get a PhD. A lot of people would say, well, that's, you know, I just admire that. And using both of your talents, both of what you're doing are healing and giving hope to other people through music or the therapy. And so thank you for both of you, what you're doing. How do you feel about your road to Colby? Is it a long road or with a PhD or do you feel a light at the end of the tunnel? There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes I believe it's a train, <laughs> um, <laughs> but there is a light. So, um, Let's talk about this experience, and I think it's really gone viral. I assume, you know, I've seen Facebook shares near 1,000 and 4,000 comments and lots of people sharing it. And sometimes we have these inflection experiences in the church that um, – are really helpful for us to grow, and it creates a broader conversation, more than just the style of your hair, to Colby, that mm -hmm. causes us to look at lots of different situations and and really make sure our practice matches our doctrine. Our doctrine would be everybody's worthy to work in the temple that holds the temple recommend and um, is qualified, and and our practice sometimes doesn't match that, and. And so that's the way I kind of frame up these situations. Doctrinally, you know, both of you and me, I'm a temple worker too. I have old gray hair, so that usually doesn't get on anybody's radar map. But what happened? <laughs> so you're, just tell us the story. And maybe people have taken your story and tried to make it their story and be pro and negative church. But yeah. That's why we just wanted to have you on the podcast. So I think this story actually started many years ago with another church policy. So while I was Good. on my mission, um, the missionary de department came out with new grooming standards for missionaries. 
and we were given a choice between two hairstyles. One was just to brush or comb it straight to the back, and the other was part on one side and comb or brush over. And I remember raising my hand in zone conference and telling the mission president, like, president, my hair doesn't do that. Like, that is not what my hair does. These uh, were grooming <laughs> standards for, for white men. For white, white men. And my mission president's uh, counsel to me was do the best that you can. So in my efforts to try and be a um, good, obedient missionary, I parted it on one side. And I <laughs> so I did the ball man brush over for probably a good year or so of my mission. So when I came home, um, because I had been brushing it against the natural pattern of my hair, um, it started to come out. So I started to go bald. Wow. And so I was at Dude. BYU and um, I did not want to be 21 years old with, you know, with the bald spot in the back. So I decided I would just shave it. And that was scary because um, at the time, there weren't a lot of shaved heads at BYU. And I wondered, you know, am I going to get in trouble in the testing center or yeah. whatever? I remember the, the day after I shaved it, I had a test in the testing center and I wore a beanie for the whole test just in case I was going to get you know kicked out of the testing center. Because even then, my shaved head didn't necessarily fit into the grooming standards at BYU. So a um, couple of months ago, I decided that I was just tired of shaving my head and I wanted to try something different and I wanted um, a hairstyle that reflected more of my culture and things like that. So I decided I was going to grow it out and I was going to get locks. And so that's what I did. And I knew that it would be a big change. And so even with the kids that I work with at work, I spent probably two months prepping my patients at work like for this drastic change. And I remember uh, the Friday before I got it done, I'm sitting down with one of my patients um, who particularly struggles with change and was like, okay, when you see me on Monday, I'm going to look significantly different and just having that conversation. So I'd kind of prepped, you know, myself and the people around me, you know, this was going to be a drastic change. And I'd even talked with my shift co coordinator and said, you know, I'm growing my hair out. And, you know, we talked about that. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get something different done to my hair. So it's okay. Um, and once I got it done and I started to think about, oh, wait a minute, I have to go back to my tempo shift. And this is a big change. And so for that whole week, I was a little bit anxious, like, oh, man, yeah, this is a big change. So I sent a picture to my shift coordinators. I just just a heads up. This is this is me. Um, and so I think that was like on a Wednesday. So Friday morning, I get a text that says, hey, can you give me a call? We need to talk before Saturday. And a part of my my brain was going, oh, he was just gonna, you know, put my nerves at ease and say, you know, sure. you're you're fine. And so as he's talking and as he's going through, you know, well, we sent the picture to the 
temple president. He looked at the guidelines, and it looks like that hairstyle wouldn't be in um, in line with the with the grooming policies um, that asked that we do a you know, con conservative hairstyle. Um, it was interesting because as as I was listening, I knew like this is a moment, like this is a teachable moment for our church and so like i didn't make a big fuss out of it and so i posted a picture in a closed group on facebook i think all it said was something along the lines of um my fellow you know black saints uh apparently this hairstyle will get you released as a temper worker i'm speechless i think that's about what it said and from there, it just kind of like took a life of its own. Um, and I think it, it resonated with people because it was yet another time where standards in the church that aren't necessarily based on doctrine um, did not take into consideration people of other cultures. And... Um, by the next morning, it was viral, and um, some people had made some calls to the um, temple and spoke with the temple president. And then I got a call from the temple president saying that he had spoken with the temple de department, and they had clarified their, their policy so that that hairstyle and a few other cultural hairstyles will now be con considered okay. Um, for male temple workers. So. Thanks. That's a great backstory. And I, did you miss a temple? Did sounds like you're Saturday temple worker. Did you miss one week, or did you even not miss a week? I missed one week, but the phone call came so early on Saturday that had I been in the right <laughs> frame of mind, I wouldn't have missed a week. So I I credit. Uh, President Duffin for getting on it and getting it resolved rather rather quickly. So, tell us about your hairstyle. You use the term locks. If yes. you, I mean, this is audio. So if we were video, we you know take the camera. Right. And so some people say dreadlocks. I like the word locks because I don't think there's anything dreadful about my hair. <laughs> um, I, that's that's what the colonizers called them. <laughs> <laughs> They were the ones who called them dreadlocks. We didn't call them dreadlocks. Call them dreadlocks. So and that's a we've named we've given you a name for your hair. And yes, honoring your name for your hair. Yeah. So I and I I love the word locks because that's exactly what this particular hairstyle has done for me. It has locked me into um, a co connection with my culture that I didn't have with my head shaved. And why is that important? Um, I think hair has always been important for black people. And it's one of those things where other cultures have often tried to shame us about our hair. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so for, for me, it has been great to be, you know, to have my hair and to be proud of it. And then I work with a lot of other black boys at work. And as they've seen me in this very... Um, professional setting where my locks with, with confident 
they've also become just more confident in some of their other hair hairstyles. And so um, it's been great for, for them to see me. Um, I think it's been great for people at, at church. Um, I joke and say that my, my calling in my ward is I'm the, I'm the resident black guy because there's not another one in my ward. So uh, it's been good for, for them to also see culture. Um, yeah, it's just been, it's been great, um, to, to, um, so I've, I've been looking at YouTube videos and been on the internet and just looking at how much of a spiritual connection that people have had with their hair. Um, and so being able to feel connected to that has been great for me, so. It's really cool. I've never heard anybody talk about hair that way. I'm really actually very touched about the importance of, you know, how God created you and how he would uh, um, really rejoice in your beautiful hair. Mm -hmm. And I think of all the gifts we have and the talents we have, and to look at your hair and your locks that way is a deep connection with your culture. And you've gone from bald to locks, and that's really very helpful for me. To understand that, um, I think of um, Corinthians 12, where we talk about all the parts of our body, the eyes, the, the hands, and how all are needed, including hair. And some people probably feel really good about being bald, and um, some people, you know, with great hair like you with locks. Talk about, I don't know how many times you've been back to the temple. What's the reaction been from your temple co-temple workers, do they know about the story? Or they know about the story. And have so they been really kind to you? Been, I had them and reach out to me during the during the the week. Um, some of my fellow temple workers have reached out during the week and just have been like, "Oh, we're so glad that you're coming back. You are coming back, right?" Like, yeah, I'm coming back. Um, so last Saturday was my first Saturday back in in the temple, and. Um, I could tell by the look on some of the patrons' faces that they've seen the the stories, and so they're like, "Oh, it's back." <laughs> <laughs> um, but like everyone has just been great. The the temple president finally got to see it with his own eyes, and he was like, "Wow, that's that's actually really nice." I'm like, "Thanks," you know. And so um, there's a couple of my um, follically challenged fellow. <laughs> temper workers who've just been like, you know what? That looks great. Like maybe, maybe we should do that. It's like, mm, let's not, but just say that we did. <laughs> and so it's been great. Just like the, the people there have just been awesome about it. And, you know, there's some, some people, I had one, one patron that reached out to me after um, the session last week. And she was like, it was, it was so great not only to see a black male standing at the altar, but to see a black male with a natural hairstyle standing at the altar. And for her, as a black woman, um, that meant a lot to her to be able to, to see that. So, Well, now you've put some tears in my eyes. And I just, I've never thought of that, of a black woman being in a temple session and to see a black man in locks. Mm -hmm and just the message of belonging. You know, I love this quote, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be fit in, but belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. 
and this is who you are. You know, you're a black man with locks who's a marriage and family therapist and serving in our church and helping people to come unto Christ. And I hope that, and we want, and so I just want the church to feel like you belong there. Mm-hmm. And and any practice that we have that's not consistent with our doctrine, that we can move beyond that. And there's something about that woman, that patron woman coming to the temple and seeing you at the altar. That's really cool. And I think one of the other things, so my official church calling is for the last five years, I've been the um, young men's president for the Genesis group. And there are a lot of young men there who also have natural hairstyles, whether it's afros or locks and things like that. And I've heard stories from their parents of times when they've um, either been um, not permitted to pass a sacrament or things like that because of their their hairstyles. And so this was also a moment for for me to speak up for, for them. And for the last couple of months, our, our lessons have focused on learning the, the difference between um, gospel doctrine and church culture and helping them to understand that a lot of the, the hurt that they experience at church isn't necessarily due to doctrine, but it is due to um, church culture, and that's man-made and that they can challenge that that culture. It's really cool. I love the role model you are. I've been to Genesis a couple times. I guess I've probably seen you there, and um, I've loved sitting in and being a part of that just a couple times. And how cool it is you're the young men's president for these young Genesis men, and how cool is you have locks and that you serve in a temple. And the message they came back to the local congregations about to Colby that is a temple worker with locks. And if I'm back in a local ward, I'm thinking, well, that sends a message about how I should treat this 16-year-old black man in my ward mm-hmm. and black woman. And and to help us look inward as a point of inflection, I think you used. Um, James, so you've known, you and to Colby are friends. I think you've known each other for a year or so. Tell our listeners kind of your take on this story. And you've shared some really wonderful things on Facebook. Yeah, so um, I remember Dakovi came to me uh, directly, you know, sent me uh, a message on one of the platforms, you know, letting me know what had happened at, uh, at the temple. And, you know, of course I was incredulous. I couldn't, while I wasn't necessarily surprised that that had happened to him, I was still in a mode of that's, that's not okay, that's not right. And, um, you know, when Tacovi told me, I, I asked him directly what he, he wanted to do about that, you know, and he said he wanted to go public with what had happened to him. He wanted to go public with the story. And I asked, you know, I suggest, you know, I asked him what I could do. Like, I wanted to show solidarity in a way. And since I had happened to be, you know, I wasn't sure if Tacovi knew this or not, but I, I had been working in the temple as well. I also have locks. And I was like, yo, let me post something in solidarity because I work in the temple. I have locks. They haven't kicked me out. Heck, I have a beard and they still don't kick me out. You know, I work in the baptistry like that every once a month, every uh, every month. So let, let me do something for it. Let me do something for this. And, uh, you know, I told to I wanted to post a picture in solidarity with him. I was like, yo, maybe you should get 
a picture like this as well. Get in your whites with your locks. You know, I want to show that we're, you know, we're proud of who and what we are. Like we're proud temple workers. We're proud members of the church. We're proud black men. And I want people to see that, but I also want them to see this story and how we are not able to be our authentic selves, even in the church where us simply showing up to the temple looking a way other than what people might expect, the response is still supposed to be, welcome to the temple, Brother Jones. Welcome to the temple, Brother Jackson Van. You know what I'm saying? So um, to see that Tekovi's story just took off like that, I mean, Tekovi had actually joked about it. He was like, yeah, I want to see this go viral. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the formula for that kind of thing is, but just seeing that our story, or rather Tekovi's story, spoke to so many people, and uh, seeing how much support he got was super encouraging. Like to see that so many members of the church knew that what had happened to Tekovi wasn't good and to know that they were more inclined to let Tekovi's authentic expression of self rather than a fall in line, cut your hair uh, attitude be put into place. Like that was super encouraging to me as, a, as another black man in the church who was really just trying to live as authentically as possible uh, within the within the within the culture of the church uh, while doing his best to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, you know, as revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith. So um, I, I just really am thankful that the response to this has been overwhelmingly positive. And I'm thankful that Tekovi is back in the temple working as an ordinance worker where he belongs. And I'm thankful that uh, people were able to see that story and people were able to think about we're able to think about us we're able to think about their relationships with black people in the church so a lot of positive things has happened and i'm just grateful for it that's very helpful james and what a great team you make <laughs> and i'm glad there's community i love a phrase you said here james authentic expression of self um how cool is that and i think of christ and what he taught and how he helped everybody to be authentic in who they are. And that obviously is not, doesn't, it doesn't, people say, well, being your authentic self, does, what does that mean? And I think it's, it doesn't change your feelings about the church, your commitment to the doctrine. It just allows you to be who God created. And I love Elder Holland's talk about the harmony of the choir. And we need different voices in the choir to create the beautiful harmony. Harmony is all of us coming together in our differences. I'm, 58 with pretty silver hair, um, pretty boring conservative hair by default. So, but to Colby sitting across and you on the phone have very different hair and different skin color and different worldviews and different perspective. But I, we need all of those different views to become the body of Christ. And I think I have a special, I've always felt the gospel needs to work first for those that have a harder road, not for me sort of in the center of from the margin, but I've always felt as I uh, there's a pool of Bethesda painting hanging in our room here, and Christ is with those that are kind of have a harder road or society is pushed out, and He's right with them. So as I read the teachings of Christ, I think what's my responsibility to my black members um, to help them feel the body of Christ and what I can learn from them, and sometimes I don't even know what you know. So I withdraw sometimes because I'm worried of offending. Or saying the wrong thing. So that's why coming to Genesis has been very helpful for me and to read these posts. Um, I'd love to just talk about the feedback you got. Um, did it, 
you know, you talk about, so James and you team up in a very appropriate way. And I don't think this, you wanted to go viral because you wanted to point out a mistake potentially of the church or a decision that got reversed. I don't think you're trying to embarrass the church. I think you're using this with really good motive to just try to help us do better. Right. So my my thing was it, it, it needed to open up a conversation about this being a global church and how do we as a global church create, I won't even say create, how, how do we respect the the place of um, culture in a global church. The funny thing is that the negative feedback hasn't necessarily come from the Wasatch Front, where I thought the negative feedback would come from. The, most of the negative feedback actually came from our brothers and sisters on the African continent, which opens up another conversation that the um, the re- relationship and e- experiences of Black um, American members of the church is vastly different from that of Black African members of the church. And um, even though we, we share this this common African culture being um African uh uh American, there's parts of our culture that we don't necessarily share with our African brothers and sisters. And perhaps locks is one of those things. And so some of the feedback I got from them was, you know, it's the uniform of of the priesthood and and you know we we need to look this way and whatever, and it really did make me kind of take a step back and and kind of ponder like, am I that disconnected? Like, am I so disconnected from my culture because I've embraced the the gospel culture that I would raise an eyebrow at some of the the more um, fundamental parts of um, African uh, American culture. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And I think what I'm learning here is just there's differences between this continent and and black men in our church and other mm-hmm. continents and maybe differences within. Um, so not everybody's a, I probably look at all black LDS men and think they think the same way about everything. And I realize that that's not true. Right. And mm-hmm. Very helpful. Any thoughts on that, James? Yeah, like you said it yourself, we don't all uh, see eye to eye on, um, you know, on everything. In fact, Akovi and I don't even necessarily agree that what happened to him was racism. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word cultural insensitivity, and that's okay. I prefer to look at it as racism because I do view, um, gosh, I, I do happen to view you know, the policing of natural hair as, you know, a function of the institution of racism that has always existed in America. But, you know, we don't have to necessarily agree on that. That's not the point of this conversation that Tocqueville has started. The whole point is that we start talking about 
what kind of blackness or what degree of blackness we are currently allowing the black saints to express within the walls of the church. That is the conversation that is most important. That's the conversation that DeColby started and that people were successfully able to understand, thank goodness. Unfortunately, DeColby has already acknowledged that uh, he's gotten some uh, negative feedback from the African saints who perceive, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, the white standards of respectability where aesthetics are considered to be doctrinally based and to be necessary to where we in America don't necessarily uh, share that viewpoint. Um, where Tacobi has gotten negative feedback from African saints. I didn't get any negative feedback from anybody on the Wasatch Front either. I didn't get any negative feedback from any members of the church, actually. I actually, the primary people I got negative feedback from were uh, white ex-Mormons and white people who are not Mormon at all and never were. You know, these are people who simply do not understand or can't fathom why uh, black people would be members of a church that has you know, the history that we do. And, uh, you know, while I understand that, um, you know, I, I think I've made it clear where I stand on them having an opinion on that. But, uh, you know, that that I'll just say for now, say for me personally, that is where I've received the majority of negative feedback has been from white ex-Mormons and never Mormons. And talk about white, ex, white ex-Mormons. Why would they take this story and and just explain that to our listeners. Well, when you leave the church, and you know, I'm only speculating because I've, um, you know, I've never left the church. I only understand what it is like to be loyal to an organization and then to eventually leave it when you become disillusioned with it. What I believe is happening is when people leave the church, they have to continuously uh, justify their decision to leave the church. And that's not to say that everybody who has left the church feels that way, because that's not the case. Many people leave the church. They are, you know, mentally healthy. They are happy and they don't really say anything else about the church. They don't really bother with the church anymore. But uh, there are some people who have left the church who feel the need to constantly belittle the church and to constantly take things that the church has done or is doing and use them to the ends of making the church look bad. So there is a lot of people who felt the need to take to Colby's story and not actually tell his story, but to change it and to have a different conversation on how the church is racist or how the church has been, um, you know, the church has always been this way or how the church is not welcoming. And they use that to justify their own decision of leaving the church. So I feel that is what was happening in this instance. I don't fault people for it. Okay, that's a lie. I do fault people for it, but like I fault them for it because the reason they are twisting to Colby's story is not for a good reason. They are doing it for selfish reasons rather than for unselfish reasons. That's helpful. And I, I also want to ask you about racism. So that's a triggering word potentially is, when, you know, it's just, a, it's a really good word, but it can be a triggering word. I'm comfortable with both of you calling this different things. I think it's my responsibility as the white guy to not label this experience and to let you, the black men, label this experience and call it for what you see it. And for me then not to, to say, well, to try to talk you out of that, but to listen to both of you label this experience the way you see it, because it's a, it's a black man's experience. And so that's 
my job, I think, as a Latter-day Saint is to is to understand the label you'd use and to justify that label and have you explain that to me. Um, so tell us about your thoughts that this is a sign of racism. Yes, sir. Okay. So um, historically speaking in America, um, we have always had black people subjected to white supremacy, and that takes on many different forms. But uh, one form of that is respectability politics in which black people, in essence, feel like we have to subscribe to white standards of respectability in order to be accepted uh, by the dominant culture, which is white culture. So in terms of, uh, you know, appearance, that means not having our natural hairstyles. Um, you know, you'll probably actually, you probably heard stories where people have gotten fired or kids have gotten suspended or given detention for wearing natural hairstyles like uh, braids or locks or afros, you know, things like that. That to me is just people labeling something as dirty, as unkempt, as unprofessional, as unclean. That is a traditionally black style. Like our hair just naturally grows this way. And just because it grows this way on our bodies doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. However, historically speaking, these styles have been perceived as threatening styles. They've been perceived as militant styles simply because they are our net. This is the way our hair naturally grows. So the reason I am comfortable calling this instance racism is because, you know, people have looked at a a black hairstyle, one that is almost exclusively black, one that is our natural hairstyle, and have determined this is not professional, this is not godly, this is not clean, or this is not appropriate for the house of the Lord. And I'm like, how is my natural hair not appropriate for the house of the Lord? Are you telling me that my appearance, that my natural appearance, the way my hair just naturally grows is not acceptable before God? Like that to me is what makes this particular instance really smack of racism is simply because, you know, that is the message they are communicating is that that hairstyle, that appearance is not godly. So when you tell a black man that the way his natural hair is not godly and it doesn't present as such, then we have a problem. So uh, in short, that's why I am quick to label this particular instance as one of racism. That's very helpful for me, and I'm very comfortable with your definition. And, 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 and to... Go ahead. And I think we also have to understand that because there are people like James who are willing to call things the way that they are, then I have the privilege or the opportunity to be able to look at it differently. Does that make yeah. sense? So my ability to call it cultural in insensitivity um, comes from people like James who are willing to call out racism, you know? And so I think it's actually two, two ends of the same coin, but it's the same battle. Um, I'm, I'm just able to, to take it from the, from the view viewpoint that most people in the church along the Wasatch front, have lived their entire lives around along the Wasatch Front. And so they have not been exposed to many other cultures. And so it doesn't dawn on them that, oh, maybe people's hair grow differently, or maybe, you know, people's manner of dress are 
you know, is different or people's style of um, even the, the thing that, that we call sacred music is interesting. different because that's another thing that bugs me about church culture. What what we call sacred music, if you've been to Genesis, yeah. you know. Holy cow, that was awesome. <laughs> we do music differently. We clap at, at, at and Genesis. we sing. and Yeah, and so I'm one of the other callings that I have is the music director at, at Genesis. And, and sometimes I even get pushed back there about the music that we choose at, at Genesis. You know, some people might come and they are wanting to, to see us um, transition our music more towards the green handbook. And I'm going to fight that one. Like, I, I will fight that one like I fought for my hair because there is a c connection that we have as a people and as a culture to our music that if we start to 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 lose that, then we start to, to lose a part of, of who we are. And that's why when mm. I'm asked to do a special musical number and sacrament meeting, I don't touch the green book. I go straight to old Negro spirituals. That's awesome. Um, because they need to know that our music is just as sacred as some of the pioneer hymns, if not more so, because those songs were, were born out of a, a time when all our people had was their faith in God, because everything else had been stripped away from them. And these songs were their way of holding on to that piece of hope. That's really cool. And when you talk about the importance of pioneer songs to me and compare that to Negro songs for you, I get that. And when you visualize that, um, Tacovi, with everything was stripped away from us, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and music, and boy, I, as I listen, I go, I would never want to take that away from you because Christ would never want to take that. It's part of healing and it's part of hope and it's part of community that I've loved in a couple of Genesis. That's very helpful. Um, if I'm a, let's say I'm a singles ward bishop or a regular bishop and I've and I've got black members in my ward or Hispanic or Samoan or just non-white people, what can I do um, to create the right kind of culture? Any thoughts either of you have on that? I had a bishop at BYU that I'm actually still in touch with, um, Bishop Estelle, and he always asked in our ward, if you speak another language and you're asked to give the prayer and sacrament meeting, would you please offer that prayer in that other language? And it was so re refreshing on a Sunday morning to hear something other than English. That's cool. You know, and it was so small, just, you know, a prayer. And, and the, the message that it sent was that your, your culture is welcome here. And you might not understand the, the words that have been spoken, but you can feel the, the spirit of those prayers. I think that's one place to 
to start. The principle of that is extendable. I love I love that. James, any thoughts on that question from you? Yes, sir. Um, so a big one, a couple of big ones for me are definitely don't be afraid to talk about race issues. Don't be silent about them. Um, and I say that because I was just looking through my gospel library app. I was, uh, I was searching through conference talks. I was searching on, on the topic of racism. And when I typed in the word racism into the search bar in the gospel library app for general conference, I got three results back, you know, um, I got one result from 1995 or 93. And then I got two more results from 2017. And the funny thing about those two results from 2017 is one talk is quoting the other talk. So like, there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of talks that address this particular issue. And race has been a very hot topic, at least within the last five years in a way that, uh, in the last seven years in a way that at least white people have, you know, caught wind of it or caught the attention of it. Now, when I did that same search for the topic of pornography, I had results for days. Like I was scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I couldn't find the end of that list where pornography was being discussed in general conference. So that tells me that even though race is a significant issue, and I think, I think a lot of people would concede that we are clearly not talking about it enough as a church to address it. And uh, I know that we're kind of afraid of addressing that topic. And I would really like us to just be less afraid of it. And just to like, give you one more example of how I've seen this happen, uh, a mutual friend of Decolvi and I, uh, she recently attended. Now, let's see. It is three years ago last week that Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were gunned down um, by, by police. Now, she was attending church that following Sunday in a predominantly black ward. At least 60% of the people in that ward were black, but the bishop was not black. He was white. Now, all the black people in that particular congregation were grieving heavily. And, um, you know, that they, they needed some words of comfort to be said with regard to what had just happened. Like two unarmed black men were just gunned down senselessly by police that particular week, and they needed comfort. Now, before the close of the meeting, a counselor got up and said that the bishop would like to say a few words before the close of the meeting. And there was an audible gasp in that congregation, audible gasp. Um, the black members, you could feel that they wanted to hear something. They wanted to receive something that particular Sunday. And when the bishop got up, the first words out of his mouth were, I want to talk to you about a trip my family took to Idaho recently. And just, you know, you, you could just feel the air go out of the room. You know, we, we as black members of the church really want to know that we're not being ignored. We want to know that people are not afraid to address this issue. Um, we, we know that, um, at least according to the Higher Education Research Institute, the most spiritual people in the country are black people. So it would stand a reason that there would be more of us in the pews on Sunday. But black members of the church only number about like, I don't even know what the percent is. It's less than 3%. I know that much for sure. And uh, given that we're about 13% of America's population, that number should be a lot higher. So I, I really want to see members of the church being less afraid to talk about issues of race, more willing to engage it, more willing to talk about it. If that has to be worked into the curriculum in some way, that's great. My elders quorum president came up to me last night and he asked me to 
talk about race and elders quorum two weeks from now, I'm more than happy to do that. I think if more, um, I think if more churches or more congregations made an effort to do that, to engage with their black communities and to engage with black issues as a church, uh, that would be an immense step in the in the right direction. Just something as simple as going to a vigil held by another church for you know the inevitable next time a black man gets gunned down. See more, send some members of the church there, and I think that would do. Uh, wonders for us as as a church, wonders for us as black people in the church. Those are two great examples. You know, those are both doable. Those are obviously way consistent with our doctrine. The music one you talked about and and talking about a current painful event that our members um, and taking, because we know black churches and a lot of white churches would be talking about a topical issue of the day Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I think that's a blind spot for us. Like even, you know, a, a large current event that has kind of impacted all of us, we sometimes don't even talk about that at church and in a prayer. And it's like we're, I don't know wh- why we do that sometimes as a practice, but I think a level of maturity is that we're talking about the issues that our members are thinking about and and the pain that's being created, especially with the black man shooting and we're able to, I've always felt honoring people's pain is part of healing them. Even if that yes. can't solve this situation, just acknowledging the pain that black members feel in that congregation, to me, and you would know better than I would, would be part of the process of just healing. I feel like that's part of the baptismal covenant, so I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think as a, a church that that prides itself on family history, I think it would be interesting to see what would happen if those in church leadership looked at their family tree and their pedigree and discovered how many black cousins That's they cool. really have. That's cool. You know what I mean? Because I, I feel like they, they are so disconnected from it that they don't understand. You know what? These are people in my family and they, they might be distant cousins, but they're cousins nonetheless. And and maybe I ought to use my my voice on behalf of these cousins. I like that. And you know I've heard um I've I've heard people you know, talk about our history with black members. And I've heard some members of the church say, well, that was just, it wasn't God's time for the priesthood ban to be lifted until then. I've heard other members say that, you know, that's just racism. It is. It's insensitive. That is racism. And I've, I was probably in the first camp because that kept everything nice and tidy for me as a white member that, you know, looking back, we may have done better. And now I look at that and I see it's probably, I should probably let you two speak about if he thinks that's racism to educate me because that's your people that, so talk about that, if you will, how you reconcile the priesthood ban, ban racism and just those topics to, who wants to go first on that one? <laughs> I don't know that there is a, reconciliation to be had. Um, They did what they did, and it was not correct, and it took far too long for them to 
correct it. I think that that's the only way to reconcile it. Like there, there's not a space in my soul for a rationalization of it. It was just wrong. Like it was, it was wrong, and it shouldn't have been. And it took far too long for it to be corrected. And I feel like it took as long as it did, not because it took the Lord that long to speak on it, but it took mm-hmm. long for, for people to be willing to hear the Lord's voice on it and to be willing to change their behavior and or their beliefs to make room for it. I love what you said, and I'm very comfortable with what you said. James, your thoughts on this? I agree with Tacovi. Like, um, to me, I am always a, I've, like, since I learned about the priesthood ban as a 12 year old uh, ironic priesthood holder, I, I kind of lost whatever idea I had in infallible prophets or infallible leaders. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, scripturally speaking, that's never really been a thing. Uh, latter, like as far as our latter day prophets go, that's never really been a thing. Like I I want to be able to extend the same grace to my leaders that I would want Christ to extend to me. And we have been told many times that mistakes have been made. You know, Elder Uchtdorf in one of his uh, more recent uh, talks said that mistakes have been made and we need to be able to acknowledge that. And I think the primary reason so many people struggle to say that the priesthood ban was racist is simply because they're not willing to accept that the leaders made a mistake because a lot of people interpret this idea of the prophet never being able to lead us astray as a prophet's literal ability that if he ever were to do something incorrect that he'd be removed from his place or something like that and i don't really read into that the same way i don't think that the prophet is not able to lead us astray because he'll like be struck down or something like that i think the prophet will never be able to lead us astray because if we are in tune with the holy spirit then the prophet, if he makes a mistake, we'd be able to catch on to that. And we have scriptural precedent for this. Like Nephi, uh, the prophetic lot fell on him when Lehi was murmuring. So Nephi had to go and be the one who handled business. And uh, in, the, in the New Testament, Cornelius knew that he would receive the gospel before Peter even knew he would receive the gospel. Like when just before Peter got the uh, instruction to take the gospel to all the Gentiles, Cornelius already knew that he was going to be receiving the gospel. So there's precedent for this. And I really want people to understand that there is imperfections up top. There are delays up top. And that is totally okay. We do what we can at our level to make sure that uh, situations and circumstances are proper for the Lord to reveal more light and knowledge to us. I don't know exactly what that looked like uh, when the priesthood ban got lifted, but I suspect we have analogs today. We are going to see that motion happen, and uh, we need to be able to just simply acknowledge that our leaders are capable of mistakes, they were capable of mistakes, and that's totally okay. We just need to be able to acknowledge that. I really like what you both said, and I'm thinking about that in the context of many that for, um, you know, look at our leaders that they sustain and support, but see things they're not uncomfortable with either currently or historically. And a lot of those members want to stay as authentic members of the church, but don't have a paradigm to do that. And if, like you're teaching, James, if we teach about perfect um, leaders that never make a mistake, then it's hard to reconcile that. But if we do what you just taught and and 
talk about leaders as the way you did and use scriptural examples, um, then I can reconcile this and I can hold both spaces that I support and sustain our leaders and I recognize mistakes that have been done in the past. And then I can call this racism. Mm. And I, I think if I call this racism and a mistake as a white guy, I think I can help heal black members or other people better than if I don't. And if, I, mm. if I'm trying to reconcile this and bring us together, and I'm not a leader of the church, I'm thinking that that helps um, just heal if we call it what it is and we're mature enough to be able to use racism and, and mistakes of the past. Um, any thoughts on that, um, just as I'm speaking as a white guy about this issue? <laughs> I, I think I made a post about this um, over the last two weeks, but one of the most unhelpful things that people have said it, when it comes to, to race is, well, isn't there just one way, race, the human race? Uh, that is, I'm rolling my eyes super hard right now. Is the most invalidating and just cringingly naive thing that we could ever hear. Um, there are multiple races within Heavenly Father's kingdom, and each of us have something unique and beautiful to add to that kingdom. And when we have policies or when we um, distort doctrine to um, belittle or devalue any of those races, then we um, we we run the the risk of injuring the whole body of Christ. Um, I think that's the scripture that you used earlier. Yeah. You know, we we are all a part of the the body of Christ, and each race and each culture is a part of that body. And so when we try to to change that or dilute it or de devalue it, we're actually hurting the whole body of Christ. And I don't think that any of us will will have one part of our body not working properly and then say, oh, well, you know what? Well, we don't really need that. You know, like we we do what we can to get the rest of the parts of our body to get that other body part healed. And I think as a as a church, we need to see each other and our cultures and our races as a part of the overall beauty of the the church and then do what lies in our power to protect that beauty. I really like that. Um I know a quote that's helpful for me that, interesting enough, I use in my LGBTQ presentation is this quote that from Brene Brown, um, Black Lives Matter is a mo movement to rehumanize black citizens. All, life matter, all lives matter, but not all lives need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that's been helpful for me because I realize all lives matters works for me. And it's like you said, you know, can't we just all be the same human race? But I realize that that's not probably what Christ wants, and I have to work harder um, from a doctrinal standpoint because of what Christ taught to pull 
others into full moral inclusion that have been marginalized. And so just otherwise, I'll just add to people's burdens. So I don't know if you like that quote or don't like that quote. Um, I like the quote, but I think it, it brings And maybe up, you can give some other light on that. I think it, it, it brings up an underlying, um, this is going to be probably the harshest word that I, good. that I use. Podcasts are good for this. There is a <laughs> hypocrisy in the church. And I think we need to just call it what it is. People left the church. They were absolutely outraged that there was a policy that said that children of same-sex couples shouldn't be baptized or whatever so that kids weren't coming to church being taught one thing and then coming home and being taught or exposed to something different. I get that. I honor that. But what about all those years when little black kids sat in primary and saying families can be together forever and then went home and that was not the case. Like, where was the outrage there? Like, where was the, the, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to pack up and leave the church because this is not right. So I think we, we pick and choose which marginalized people we are willing to advocate for. And it's easy to be an ally when you don't have like an, an LGBT kid or whatever, because at the end of the the day, your family is tucked safely in into the status quo of the church. But when it comes to things like like race, and it's like, okay, hmm, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't really wanna I don't wanna touch that one. That one might be messy. And so then we just kind of go along with the program where I I would have loved to have seen that much outrage that there were kids who were being taught in primary that families are forever and that the the, the temple is the closest place on earth to Heavenly Father's presence. But yet be, because those kids were born into brown bodies their families didn't have access to the temple and their families didn't have access to those ordinances that made it possible for their families to be together forever. Like we we need to call that out. Agreed. And I, that's helpful for me. And it makes me a little uncomfortable. And that's what I like about this podcast. I love everything you said, but it's good for me because it made me feel a little uncomfortable. And it made me think inward. What do I need to do better? And what's my responsibility here? And that to me, being uncomfortable leads to growth. And so I like feeling uncomfortable sometimes because mm-hmm. it causes me to grow. And I want to have a church environment and a, an environment that challenges me sometimes um, and makes me feel a little uncomfortable because then I think I can grow. Um, thoughts from you, James? Yeah, I kind of lost the original prompt, so I just want to uh, add a witness to what, uh, what Tecovia said and kind of kind of rounded out a little bit um so something that came to mind was just the necessity of making sure we understand how much this affects all of us you know we we don't talk about racism because we need y'all to do work for us racism anti-racist work this is self-work like we need you guys to do this for you because you know we 
we're all in this together at the end of the day. Like the work of Christianity is a very interdependent work. Uh, something James Cone said that I really liked, and I believe Peter, both Peter and uh, Joseph Smith have echoed this second sentiment. He, he said something along the lines of we're, we're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. So what affects one directly affects all indirectly. And as long as there is poverty in this world, as long as there's racism in this world, no one can be totally healthy. No one can be totally saved. No one can be totally righteous. So strangely enough, like I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. So this work that we're doing, this work that Tekovi and I are drawing attention to, we're not doing this just for us. We're doing this for the entirety of the flock of God's family because all of us are not getting home safely unless we have concern for the one. And right now, this is just our effort to show concern for the one. It's really helpful. That's kind of the 40,000 foot view of this issue. And if I'm understanding that, you know, part of eliminating racism is to help me be a better person. It's not just to help my black. That's it. It's have a better life or a better road. But I need to do this because it'll help me be a better person and it'll help us come together. Is that fair, James? Or That's it. That is it. And then if you frame it like you frame it, I have it. It's responsibility on me. Um, I like the way we all, the, like the interdependency, a bishop in our word here used to talk about a scripture in the Book of Mormon of weave together um, one heart. And that, so when you're talking like you're talking about, I'm thinking of the need to weave together in one heart and what we need to do that together. I can't become the God, I can't become the disciple God wants me to be if I just sort of isolate myself into um kind of an isolated world where I'm just defined by commandment keeping and, and reading and praying, I have to interact. I call it sort of the horizontal element of my baptism commandments. There's the vertical element, which is kind of my relationship with God and commandment keeping and my private behaviors. And I sometimes where there's an imbalance in my life and maybe others, but I think a big part of my baptism covenant is horizontal, and that's my interaction with other people. And I've learned that um, as I do that, it actually helps my vertical, just like your teaching is. So as I understand um, my fellow brothers and sisters and from all walks of life in the body of Christ, it's helping me become the disciple God wants me to be, and as well as um, lifting me and lifting other people. So sometimes I look at it that way as I'm just thinking out loud about your thoughts. Um, but I'm not sure I got that right, so I'm pretty open to learn, like all of our listeners are probably thinking, this is really helpful for me. Um, other thoughts, James, let's start with you, and then then we'll go to Tocolvi. Sounds good. So, so something that I was thinking about as we spoke is, um, you, you know, I, I have pretty strong opinions on explaining my membership in this church or membership in Christianity in general. But something that I do want to talk about with regard to why I believe that uh, black people are such spiritual individuals, at least statistically speaking, according to the Higher Education Research Institute or whatever it is, I, I believe that the central gospel of Jesus Christ is one of liberation, you know, liberation from sin, liberation from death. And it makes sense that oppressed people identify most with the message of Christianity. 
like our inner thrust for liberation, it's it's not only consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus' righteousness and his mission, it's inseparable from the plight from the plight of the dispossessed and the dehumanized and the destitute. Like his covenant uh, with Israel was tied to their oppression. It was in it was tied to their enslavement. And uh, black theology, like our theology, Mormon theology, it centers on Christ, meaning that it holds that Jesus is at work in our worlds, in our communities, rather than being an un, rather than being an abstract, unembodied idea. So like, I, I believe that uh, part of the reason my faith is so strong is because I, I believe it was made for people like me. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ exists for people on the margins. And uh, if you look at Christ's ministry, you see the evidence of that everywhere. He was always ministering to the people on the margins. He was always ministering to the people who uh, were cast off by society. And uh, we, we saw that continue with the ministry of the apostles. So I, I'd like to believe that part of the reason why our faith is so strong is because we have a relationship with the gospel in a way that the, the, the message of liberation identifies with us uh, extremely strongly. I love that word, liberation. Talk, James, as a follow-up question. Why the LDS Church over other Christian religions for you then? What makes this your path versus other Christian religions? So I am, um, I, I describe myself as a harsh critic of the culture, but a staunch advocate for the theology. And uh, something that's really... <laughs> that's that's a podcast. That's a great <laughs> title to a podcast or a Facebook post. <laughs> um I was just going to say that uh, one, one part of the theology that's really beautiful to me, and I was talking to a young man that I was privileged to baptize last night into the church. He's, uh, you know, he's, all, he's also a black man. I haven't even witnessed a black baptism of a black man since my mission, so this was like a big deal for me. So I was privileged to give him a ride home, and we started talking about um, this semi-random religion that a lot of people discover in prison called the Five Percenters. And a very crucial piece of their doctrine is that God or divinity is in all of us. They, like us, believe that there is a divine spark in all of us, that we are divine. They don't say it as explicitly, but something that's very beautiful to me is that we believe that we are literal sons and daughters of divinity. We are sons and daughters of Heavenly Father, and as such, we're destined to become what He is. And that is something that is extremely powerful to me. And especially as a uh, black man in America, somebody who has who is regularly being told that their worth is not as much as somebody else's, the idea that we are destined to become gods is a big deal. Which brings me to the second piece that is very um, that is very meaningful to me as a member of the church is this idea of continuing revelation. What we have presently isn't all there is. It's not all that will be said. Like there is still so much more doctrine, so much more information, so much more intelligence to be gained, both as people and as a church. I believe that one day we are going to receive uh, more counsel as far as how we deal with issues of race in America, that we are going to figure out how there's going to be a table, or rather a seat at the table for members of the LGBTQ community. Like, it is very comforting to know that everything that there is to be said about the gospel of Jesus Christ has yet to be said, and has yet to be uh, given to us in a way that uh, 
make sure there's a seat for everybody at the table. So uh, I think those were probably the two biggest pieces of Mormon theology that uh, make me gravitate towards it as opposed to other Christian faiths. It's very helpful. Um, I would have loved to have been at that baptism last night and seeing the two of you, you know, you baptized this good brother into the church, and I love the way you separated our doctrine or our culture. And both of you, I think a lot of our listeners are younger, they're your age, they're dealing with complex things, they're looking for examples of people that um, are staying in and the foundation of doctrine you're using to stay in, and, and both of you acknowledging the culture and how difficult it can be and how it doesn't match our doctrine. And so I think this is really helpful for a lot of our younger members and thoughtful other people that just want to not have a better tone and better understanding. I think a great example you said, James, or I think it was you that said, you know, when you went onto your gospel app and searched for racism, there's only three mentions of, and I think we just have to mature. And I think our younger members are craving for this content that takes on social issues, um, just like Christ did. And uh, my own kids are wired into poverty. I've got, you know, I don't want to go off on my kids in this podcast and the things they're doing, but their worldview is different than my worldview growing up along the Wasatch Front. And the issues that are important to them, like poverty and education and social equality and climate and race, is just, it's their worldview. And so they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and they say, what is my gospel doing to address these issues? And and then they see a gap when they look at the gospel app and see three references to racism and or poverty or the environment, and it's a disconnect for them. And and but doctrinally it's not a disconnect, you know, just like you're teaching us and and Christ taught. So I think that's very helpful. And I think um further light and understanding and will help us get to the some of the places we need to. Um to Colby, your thoughts is on all this as we're kind of wrapping up. Well, I am a member of the church because my family had a very specific prayer for answers, and the missionaries showed up the next day with very specific answers, and I can't deny any of that. And then I've had the experience of teaching those same truths to other people and seeing their lives transformed. And I can't deny that. And so I stay because I realize that this is where Heavenly Father wants me. And if he wanted me somewhere else, he would have led me somewhere else. Like this is where he wants me. And because he, he wants me to be here, then I have to ask myself a question. And that question is why? Like why? am I still here? Like, why has Heavenly Father not told me to go elsewhere? And the very simple answer is because there is a work for me to do here. When I when I think about blessings that I've gotten over the years and just things that I've seen, like, I know that a part of my ministry on this earth is to make the Church of Jesus Christ more in inclusive of Heavenly Father's children. And if I leave, then that mission doesn't get fulfilled. 
and more so than worried about what other people think. Like, I know that there's going to be a day, I hope it is not soon, but there's going to be a day when I'm going to have to look Heavenly Father in the face, eye to eye, and give a, um, an account of what I did with the resources that he gave me. And I believe that a part of the things that he's blessed me with is brown skin and locks. <laughs> and yes, sir. And then I need to be able to say I took that brown skin and I took that beautiful hair and I made the the kingdom a more in- inclusive place for your children. And if I can't do that, then I don't want to know what the wrath is going to look like. Um, and so that's why I stay. And it's interesting. I I spent the first several years of my church membership feeling like an outsider. That's honest. Um, feeling like, well, I'm a convert. I hated July. I mean, I still kind of roll my eyes at Trek because that's just not what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like I, I hated Pioneer Day because I felt so disconnected from it. And then I got this job um, while I was a student at BYU working for one of the family history companies here in Utah. And in between calls, I would just do my own family history work. So my my dad's mom, when we first joined the, the church, sent me a letter where she had written out all the family history that she knew. And it went back generations. And so I've had this, you know, since I was nine, this, you know, these few generations of family names and relationships. And I remember like plugging all of those into a family tree and then just watching it just explode to the point of learning that in that same family line, there were pioneers. Um, Wow. So like my, my family has been in this church since it started. Wow. My family has been in the Utah territory since it became a state, you know? And so this is my church and this is my gospel. And there have been family members along the the way that have sacrificed a great deal for this gospel. And it would be so ungrateful of me to walk away from something that they've given so much so that I can have. And so that's why I stay. I love that. Do you hope, and this is a, I hope it's an appropriate question. Do you hope to be resurrected with brown skin and locks? If I am not, I'm going back to sleep. Because I hope you. (laughs) I'm like, we got something wrong. Because I just thought of that as you were just owning who you are. And I thought the loving God would want these things that you love and are proud of you and are your individual characteristics to come with you in the resurrection. Well, I think that if we teach that we're going to recognize Heavenly Father and Christ, 
um, wouldn't we also recognize ourselves? And I wouldn't recognize me without without brown skin, you know. And, and and even even with my locks, like when I look at myself in the mirror now, I feel like I'm seeing more of who I am than I ever did with the shaved head. So I can't imagine um, being resurrected in a form that I've never seen in this life and that I wouldn't recognize. I love that. James, and just a comment, but I'll let James give his closing thoughts too. I, One of the things I notice about both of you, brethren, and some of my friends that have just had a harder roads is your spiritual maturity and your depth. And you've kind of, I don't know if this is fair, but sometimes I say you haven't the institutional side of the church hasn't had all the answers for you. And at times the culture is added to your pain. And so I've recognized sometimes in the, like with both of you, a spiritual death because you've had to work really closely with Heavenly Father to figure this out. And he's never abandoned you and his culture loves you and he would, but I just sense great spiritual depth and insight. And I sense you've both been stretched in ways that are really wonderful and and sometimes other members aren't because they never have to sort of develop the depth of maturity and spiritual maturity and insights that both of you have and you may not be comfortable with me giving you these compliments but it's just my feeling about both of you and it's 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 wonderful and i i'm grateful that you've been able to do that james any final um do you have any anything else you want to say before we give james final comment i think i'm good okay yeah James, go ahead. Well, you did say something I want to hone in on it, Pops, and uh, that is just this idea that there are certain things by virtue of not being black in this church that white members did not have to deal with. Like, to be a black man in America, like, for me, a big part of it is the general hypervigilance I feel. Um, You know, to be black in America, it's to be aware of the constant scrutiny you're under and the threat that you present to others because of your race. And, you know, that's not unique to black Mormons. There's just additional elements that are included as a result of the spiritual uh, implications because of the church policies and the culture. You know, for example, if a white member of the church makes mistakes or has a, a ple- unpleasant exchange with another saint or they forget to do their ministering, they don't have to worry about that being attributed to their race. Um, that is something I have to worry about. And, you know, white members can act in ways that defy church norms without worrying it'll be attributed to the color of their skin. I don't really have that luxury. And uh, that has bred a certain toughness uh, in me. You know, granted, I also occupy several other spaces of privilege. I'm able-bodied. I'm cis male. I hold the priesthood. I, you know, I'm a pretty large dude. I could say a lot of things from the pulpit and no one's going to say nothing to me. So, you know, I, I wield that privilege as well. But, but the point is, uh, I definitely agree with you that um, there are certain things that I've been tempered to just as a result of me being black in the church. And a big part of why I stay, just to echo what Tocolvi has said, is I want to create space for other people to be able to experience what Tocolvi and I have been privileged to experience with regard to our spiritual journeys. Everybody deserves the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. Everybody deserves to not be so stressed in such a way that makes it hard for them to receive the gospel because the culture or the people around them make it difficult or they tax them in emotional or mental ways that are simply not right or not appropriate. So a big part of what I do now, I I didn't say this before 
to you earlier, but um, you know, one more thing I do out here in Boston is I co-host a podcast with my good friend, a theologian and a gay man named Derek called Beyond the Block, where we in essence do just that. We create a space for people on the margins to have the gospel, uh, to breathe gospel intention into the lives of marginalized people so that this experience of receiving the gospel is simpler, it's easier, and it's a way for all of us to um, come together and simply receive of the goodness of Christ without the inhibition of, um, I don't know, ignorance or racism or other kinds of bigotry because, you know, that, that that's important. So a big part of the reason I stay is that I have not been compromised in such a way where I have to step away from the church as a result of the trials I experienced because of my race. And because of that, I feel like uh, Tocolvi's already said it, but um, I have to stay because, you know, I need to, I need to help others partake of what I've been able to partake of. So, um, yeah, it, it is very necessary to create that space. I really appreciate what you're doing here, Pop Osler, for, uh, you know, creating this space for Tocolvi and I to be here, for us to be able to tell his story, to be able to talk about being black men in America, and to be able to help other people see what our lives are like and to hopefully make this an easier place for people on the margins to come. Um, thank you, James. Tell our listeners again, is this with Derek Knox, your podcast? Yes, sir. Yeah, and Derek's great. Tell our listeners the name of your podcast so they connect with it. I've heard about your podcast now. Yeah, my bad. Uh, the name of the podcast is Beyond the Block, like beyond the two-hour block. That's kind of the play on words there, but it's just called Beyond the Block. And I love you and Derek are doing that together and bringing your unique life experiences together. That's really cool. Um, so I include all of our listeners. I assume you're on all the podcast platforms to find Beyond the Block and to listen to Yes, sir. Because I just listening to you and knowing Derek, um, that's very helpful for our listeners. So to Colby, um, Jackson Van, thank you for driving to my home, sitting across oh, the table welcome. here. You've got a lot going on in your life as you're working towards your um, doctorate. Um, thanks for all the lives you're blessing. James Jones, thanks for joining us in Boston and your insights. Thank you. Personally been very helpful for me. I wish I'd had these kind of conversations 10, 20, 30 years ago. So thank you for what you're doing and, and taking the time to be on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Just count, count you as dear friends and brothers and glad to be connected in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thanks our listeners for joining us.